Hello and welcome to X and Y, the podcast where we sometimes travel to Norway to sit on panels discussing the migration to Mars. Last February, not like three months ago, but like 15 months ago, I went to Trondheim, Norway to be part of a panel on the migration to Mars. It was uh, part of the International Student Festival in Trondheim, or ISFIT. The theme that year was migration, and they decided that it would be interesting to have a panel talk about going to Mars. It is a really interesting discussion, so I thought I would share it with you. I'm sorry that my talk has a lot of references to the slides. Uh, I didn't really think about it in terms of a podcast. Uh, I had an audience, and I'm a very visual person, so when I get the opportunity to use visuals, I usually take it. Uh, Yeah, but... Like I said, this is a podcast. Um, Sorry. Anyways, hopefully you get the point that uh, I was trying to make, which was that it's really, really, really hard to get people to Mars and uh, pretty much impossible to get them back. Um, Hopefully that comes through. Also, as you may know, it has been a while since we recorded anything new. Hopefully that will change. Uh, Dave and I will try to start putting out podcasts on a more regular basis now, you know, for a little while at least, um, as this podcast is done before, we sort of go on hiatus for a long time, and then we sort of come back for a while, and then we go on hiatus again. Uh, we'll probably do that, so we'll probably try to put out, you know, 10 episodes or so, um, hopefully, you know, over the next, uh, 10, 20 weeks, 30 weeks, something like that whatever whatever um it may be that i interview a few people uh which the next two episodes will actually be interviews with other people and it may be that dave and i chat about uh being locked up at home uh pretty much like every other podcast that is available nowadays but you know so we're gonna we're gonna try we're gonna try lastly i should say a big thanks to kenny carlson for editing our past episodes uh, he really turned um, some wool into much better wool. I wouldn't say it's gold because, like, I mean, this is the X and Y podcast. It's definitely not gold. We we just offered, I, I should say, I offered another person to edit the podcast, and uh, that person is Autumn Kane. Um, and so Autumn edited this episode, and so I would like to thank autumn for editing this episode um and so autumn is going to continue in the tradition of grade inflation for dave and me uh you rock autumn all right without any further babbling here is the panel discussion on the migration to mars hope you enjoy it thanks our drive to explore constantly pushing our frontiers outwards is etched into who we are First spreading out across continents, carrying humanity around the planet, and creating a global, diverse species which accelerates our progress and innovation. Together we are now reaching out beyond the Earth itself, as we learn to live in low Earth orbit and explore new worlds beyond our home planet. Seeking answers to fundamental questions about our origins and our place in the universe. 
Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's event on migration to Mars. First of all, thank you very much to Trinnens Promenadeorkester for an exceptionally relevant performance. Well done. Also, I would like to acknowledge the European Space Agency for providing such great video material, making this compilation possible, setting the scene for tonight's topic. My name is Eivind Jakobsen. I will be your moderator tonight. We have a very interesting topic to discuss. And we have international experts with a lot of knowledge and experience that they will share with us here tonight in our expert panel, which you will get to know shortly. We will start with Aaron Ridley. Aaron is a associate professor at the University of Michigan. He has a PhD in atmospheric and space science. Created models for the atmosphere, models for lower Earth orbits, for satellites. And I believe, Aaron, that you also launched a small satellite, a CubeSat. He writes blog articles, he has his own podcast, X and Y, listen to it. But now, not more articles, not more podcasts. Here we have Aaron Ridley in person. Thank you guys all for inviting me here. I'm very honored to be here. So I wanted to start off by basically just giving a little bit of background on why we would want to go to Mars. I think the speakers uh, later are going to talk in much more detail about why we'd want to go, but I thought I would introduce it. So there are three reasons why I think that we would want to go to Mars. The first is a backup planet. Just like you back up your hard drive, it would be nice to back up the human species and put us somewhere else like out of reach. Mars is an okay place to do that. The second is science, which is what we're doing right now. We send a lot of rovers and satellites to Mars, basically just to do science, to understand the geology of another planet, to understand how planets form, to search for life, all sorts of scientific reasons. And the third is money. So basically, we would like to try to mine another planet or do something and try to make money. That's a typical United States answer. Um, I'm going to give you an instruction manual on how to get to Mars. Okay. Step one, you leave Earth. Step two, you get to Mars. And step three, you need to land on Mars. These are actually quite challenging, as you might imagine. The first step, getting off Earth, is actually the hardest step because Earth is a gigantic gravity well. It's very, very difficult to get off of Earth, and you need a very, very large rocket to get off of Earth. There are a lot of rockets or a lot of satellites in low Earth orbit, which are very, very close to Earth. As you saw in the introduction from the International Space Station, the International Space Station is actually very, very close to Earth. It doesn't take a huge amount of fuel to get off of Earth, but to get away from Earth's gravity takes a large amount of fuel. Step two is getting to Mars, and so it's very interesting. When you launch, you think that you could just go straight to Mars. It's just right there. But it actually takes a while to get there. And when you leave, you need to leave when Mars is at a certain point. So then when you get to Mars, it will be there also. And so, <laughs> yes, it would be very bad to get there and have no red planet. And this configuration actually only happens every two years. So you can only get to Mars every other year. You can only get from Mars back to Earth every other year. So once you arrive at Mars, then you need to get down. 
And then once you want to land on Mars, the nice thing is that Mars actually has an atmosphere, and so you can use parachutes and stuff. But Mars's atmosphere is not as thick as Earth's atmosphere, and so it's harder to get down to the surface than it is to get down to the surface of Earth. You can use much smaller parachutes on Earth because Earth's atmosphere is much more robust. So you do need to get some assistance from fuel to get down to the planet. Okay, so this is the amount of energy that it takes to get to Mars. And so with this amount of energy needed, so far what we have done, we have put basically a minivan on Mars. That's about what we have accomplished. The problem with that is that you can't live in a minivan for eight months. It takes eight months to get there. If you want to put a human on Mars, they need to be sustained and alive at the end of the journey. So you need to give them food and everything. And food takes a lot of space and people take a lot of space. So you need something much, much bigger than a minivan. Let's compare this with going to the moon. So we've gone to the moon. We've gone to the moon fairly often, actually. We drop a lot of stuff on the moon. And then we have gone to the moon and come back just six times. And so this is basically how much energy it takes to go to the moon and back. And you can see that getting to Mars itself is actually more difficult than going to the moon and back. So how do we actually go to the moon or go to Mars if it's more difficult? The Mars Science Laboratory, like the minivan-sized thing, is only 3,800 kilograms. But the Apollo 11 capsule was 45,000 kilograms, and that carried three people to the moon and back in about a week. So we're going to need to take a huge amount of mass to actually get to Mars. And that's why this is very, very difficult compared to that. If we want to bring people back from Mars and we want to use the same rocket, this is how much energy it takes. So it takes this much energy to get to Mars and it takes this much energy to get home. And that's a, that's a lot. So what's the problem? Well, fuel is the problem. The amount of fuel to get something into orbit around the Earth, like the International Space Station, is about this big. The amount of fuel to escape Earth is about that big. The amount of fuel to deliver one kilogram to the moon is that. If you wanted to go to the moon and back, it's about that. If you wanted to go to Mars, it's a bit bigger. And this is what we can do with a minivan-sized thing right now. If you want to go to Mars and back using a single rocket, this is how much energy you need, which is huge. That's unreasonable. There is some hope. Because actually, just to come back from Mars, if you were to make rocket fuel on Mars and make a rocket on Mars, this is how much energy it would take to actually bring something back from Mars. So this is actually where technology has to go in the future. If we want to go to Mars and come home, we need to do this plus this and not this gigantic thing. We need to build rockets on Mars and we need to mine for stuff on Mars to actually build fuels on Mars. People talk about SpaceX and there was a reference to it in the presentation earlier, which was awesome. So SpaceX has launched the Falcon Heavy and the Falcon Heavy can basically do this. And so it can't do any of these things yet. And they're basically pushing towards being able to do these things over here. But they haven't accomplished that yet. 
the Falcon Heavy is a good stepping stone with SpaceX, but more work needs to be done. So how much money are we spending on the problem right now? So this is a plot which shows NASA's budget as a function of time, as a percentage of the United States budget. And this is when we were going to the moon. It was about 4.5% of the national budget. And right now, NASA's budget is about 0.5% of the budget. And so we're not spending a huge amount of money actually on going to Mars. And so it took about 10 years to figure out how to send Apollo to the moon, but that was with this gigantic budget. And so if we only have this amount of budget, then it will take a few more years than that. And people talk about SpaceX actually being sort of like the company that is going to get us to Mars, but SpaceX is actually only, quote, worth about $30 billion. That's their evaluation. NASA's budget's about $16 billion per year. And so they're sort of comparable to each other. SpaceX will have to spend a huge amount of money, probably about 10 times as much money as that to actually move to Mars. And that's about all that I wanted to say. So thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Aaron. I particularly liked your instruction manual to get to Mars. I have no idea why we are struggling so hard when it only takes three steps, even might, might even have two steps. The next speaker, or the next speakers, it will be a joint presentation, is Patrick Rennie and Lucinda Offer. Patrick, I was told that you grew up with a model space shuttle in your bedroom, and I guess uh, since then it just picked up. Patrick is now president of the Mars Society in the UK. He has a degree in physics and went into the world of problem solving and engineering. And such a coincidence that Aaron touches upon uh, the need for rockets and, uh, and propulsion system when we actually have a expert in future uh, propulsion systems uh, with us here tonight, system analysts in the company Reaction Engines Limited. But I will take the opportunity also to introduce Lucinda to you. She is the executive director of the Mars Society in the US. She's also an education and outreach officer of the Royal Astronomical Society in London. I know that she's been participating in several rover challenges and working at NASA Ames, if I'm correct, Lucinda. You worked with Telerobotics and also were involved in deploying and testing the Sandstorm rover. So I think we're up for two more very interesting introductions. Please, Patrick, followed by Lucinda. It's great to be here, thank you very much. Expert is a nice, generous term, but I'll roll with it. So I'm here to convince you that we have had launches that could go to Mars since 1967 and have had various launches up until now, and we're in a very exciting time coming up. In the past, we had Saturn V, the Americans, the very famous rocket that took astronauts to the moon. That could deliver, if you take the amount of mass that it could take to orbit, which was 140 tons, a very, very big minivan. It could, in fact, deliver about 30 tons to, to Mars itself, which is also a pretty big minivan. We had the capability back then to conduct a human mission to Mars. We didn't have the appetite for it, and it was going to take a lot of lessons to physically be able to go. Since then, the Russians in the 1980s, 1988, they also developed a massive rocket. I don't know how many of you will have heard of it. It's called Energia. And that could take 100 tons to low Earth orbit. And therefore, 
in very round numbers. It could take 20 tons to Mars. And we've got, even today, Falcon Heavy. This is actually more like a minivan, as Aaron said, uh, 17 tons to Mars. Now that's all of it. It would deliver a minivan on the surface because, so with the Mars Curiosity rover that Aaron mentioned, it was nearly four tons that went to Mars. Well, the rover itself is less than one ton. The, the other three tons were for the lander to actually carry it to the surface. However, in the future, we have three massive rockets that are coming up very soon. So Long March is a bit of a way away. This is the Chinese rocket they're investing in, developing. In, it's meant to be ready for 2030. So if you all set your watches, it should be ready soon. And then we have the American attempts from NASA. It's effectively the, the space shuttle revised without the shuttle to be, to be delivering about the same capability that they used to back in 1967. This should be ready. It's meant to be 2020. We know how these things go. It might not be 2020. And then for the first time ever, really, we've had this private enterprise take on the goal of putting people on Mars. And, and so they can take 100 tons, apparently, which would be amazing. I hope we see it. So that's the launch capability, past, present, and future. Who's going? No one. None of the agencies have the appetite right now to go to Mars. They've all had plans in the past. ESA have the Aurora program. NASA have something called Design Reference Mission 5. Roscosmos had a mission to Mars proposed as well. However, you can all safely relax because the United Arab Emirates are already on their way. They'll be there in just less than 100 years. So that's good. So my key point here that I want to bring up to everyone is that what we don't want to do is lose those rockets again. Because Saturn V was retired, and since then the Americans have never had the capability that they had back then. But they, have, they lost it for a very long time, 1973. And the, the UK, we actually lost our launch entirely. We're the only country in the world who developed the capability to launch anything into orbit. And then we put one satellite up and have never done it since. Just for comparison, by the way, there are three countries that I'd name that haven't done that. They still have launch capability. Iran, North Korea, and Israel. They're all doing much better than the UK. So what I have to say is, if we kept our old rocket, Black Arrow, it was cancelled in 1971. That's almost 50 years of progress that we've lost. Ironically, the UK are now investing in commercial launch, and they will get the capability again. 50 years late. So if you don't accelerate the progress, if you don't have a goal to do something quickly, you don't have a goal at all. You will lose that capability again. So I hope I've given a very brief introduction to what we can do technically. Thank you very much. I'd like to welcome Lucinda to the stage. It is an absolute honor to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me to Norway. It's my first time. I had an opportunity to actually see the Aurora Borealis three days ago, and I hope you noticed that I had my hair done in a bit of a homage to that. <laughs> I've been working with Humans to Mars research and analog research for about 17 years now, and this is a very personal thing for me. I think I care deeply about humanity, and, and I really want an incredible future for us. Um, it might be difficult for me to joke about it, mostly because when I talk about Humans to Mars, it has been an ongoing struggle. Since I started in 2002, I've been really interested in Mars since I was five years old. Uh, it was something that I uh, strove for in high school and, of course, went through study geology at university because I was really interested in the composition of Mars, and I had to learn about what was the composition of our, of our Earth in order to have something to compare it to. So astrogeology and what is Mars made up of, and eventually, can we live there? So this is a really important topic for me. 
you know, that this is serious, this is scientific, this could possibly be our future, and for the reason for our own personal existence as a species. You may not admit this, but humans are very egocentric, and nothing bad or wrong with that. We are always looking out for our number one, and in some cases that can be a very healthy thing for us to do to take care of ourselves. And so that's no different when it comes to exploring the celestial bodies in our solar system and looking for another safe haven for us in wanting to know how it is possible that it's going to benefit us. And I think that's ultimately what's in it for us as human beings. Why should we go to Mars? That's pretty much the biggest question I get. So let's take a look at that. So humans have come far technologically because of science, but have also just from struggling. And nothing, nothing worthwhile comes easy. That's definitely something that I take away from a big challenge like getting humans to Mars. So that's the very first reason I think we should go, is just for the challenge, because I think that really creates growth for humanity. But who wants to do that? Who wants to struggle? And then those who know that the end goal will be worthwhile, will be bigger than themselves even, because those people who are working hard for it now will likely not be alive when humans inevitably go to Mars. It might be difficult. It will be a struggle. It is not going to be easy. But nothing worthwhile is ever easy. Reason number two, the science. So Aaron has talked about some of the science. We've been doing this for decades, sending rovers to Mars. And I could talk about all the many benefits that humanity gets from all the offshoot technology that the Apollo missions afforded us, or popularized things like you might take for granted, cordless drills, mobile phones, Velcro, Teflon that you probably used to make your breakfast this morning. Those weren't invented for the space missions. They were popularized by the astronauts who used them. But there are plenty other reasons in science, like we get benefits in medical technology, but also in creating a pathway for humans. That was ultimately the reason we send rovers to Mars. Basically, we sent a geophysicist to Mars. Most of the rovers that are going there are geophysics laboratories. And so they're telling us about the things that I wanted to know when I was your age. I wanted to know about the composition of Mars. Is it dynamic? What are some of the things that we can learn about Mars to pave the way for humans? So some of the instrumentation on the Curiosity rover, for instance, is the RAD, which measures the radiation levels on the surface of Mars. Can humans survive in that? Of course, at this moment, no. But perhaps sometime in the future, when we can hopefully change the atmosphere or the, the levels on Mars, warm up the planet a little bit, which is called terraformation, something that I worked on with Dr. Chris McKay at NASA Ames, who was forwarding terraforming another planet. I and mean, even Stephen Squires, and we just celebrated 15 years of opportunity on Mars, he sent the two rovers Spirit and Opportunity. And one of the things that stuck with me that he said at one of our conferences was that he expects that humans will follow the rovers. So he isn't dependent on rovers or telerobotics for the rest of science exploration. He wants the humans to follow it. And ultimately, reason number three for humanity. A lot of people say to me things like, you know, we have to take care of our planet. We shouldn't go off to another planet. Some of my students say to me, we've ruined our planet. Why should we just go to another planet and ruin that one too? And some of the things that I tell them is, well, some of the things that we've learned, the mistakes that we have made on Earth, are things that we can learn from and perhaps take that to Mars and do something differently. Do something that we know now, we've learned from our mistakes, can help a future for humanity. But some of the predictions in the 1970s were really scary. They're very grim because some of the things that were going on when I was just born was things like overpopulation and things that we deal with now still. But back then, they thought that today was going to be scary, very dystopian. Luckily, now that's not what happened. We're still here. But of course, that is always something we're thinking about in the future. 
as smart people do. You prepare. Instead of a dystopian or these very grim solutions, I'm obviously here because I want a better solution for humanity. I want a future in the stars. And one of the things that president of the Mars Society of the United States says, Dr. Robert Zubrin, do we want a Star Trek future or do we want a Soylent Green future? Remember that nothing worthwhile is easy. And I think our own existence is worthwhile. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Lucinda. We're moving on to our last expert in the panel this night. We are moving on to Casey Greyer. Casey's the chief advocate and uh, senior space policy advisor of the Planetary Society. The Planetary Society and Casey is advancing planetary exploration and search for life. Their recent observation is that it's actually also life here up in Norway. And they're now, after that exciting experience, they're now moving on to Mars. Casey writes, teaches, and speaks to the public about human exploration. He has also a degree in physics. And Casey, I will leave the floor to you as a last introduction. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. I'm very excited to be up here in Norway. I'm happy that there is life. I would have been very out of luck getting off the plane otherwise. We've kind of set the stage in the last few talks about some of the practicalities of getting to Mars, some of the ways that we need to think about how we get there, how hard it is. But for this talk, let's just assume that we figured it out. And now we're looking at establishing a long-term settlement on the surface. And in the spirit of this conference this year, Let's talk about what would migration look like going to Mars? What would the demographics, who would go? Before we go into this, why does migration happen on Earth? People study this through migration systems theory and all a bunch of other ways. And of course, this is a very broad brush. But these are some of the external incentives that people have to migrate, to pick up their lives and move from one place to another. Obviously, the economic opportunities is a major driver, finding, uh, particularly moving from less developed economies to more developed economies to have more opportunities. Then, of course, there's, we talked about this a couple days ago, climate change and environmental changes, political factors, disruption, warfare drives people out. You also have migration happening aligned with social networks, family bringing in family, uh, cultures that you're familiar with, finding ways to bring, you know, ease that transition in. And then also just a couple of things to consider also, what limits migration? You have monetary and physical cost of travel. Not everyone can afford sometimes the thousands of dollars or the thousands of miles that you need to go. Political limitations on whether you can come legally into another country. Cultural differences and, you know, related with bigotry and other issues that prevent and provide big challenges. So this is how it works on Earth. Mars, however, is going to be completely different. And the set of incentives are going to be almost the inverse of what drives migration on Earth. And this is actually what I love about conferences like this and bringing in space to talk about it. Space allows us to take an issue that we're familiar with on this planet and abstract it out and look from a slightly different perspective and see what kind of insights that we can gain from that. What does that tell us about the human condition? I and mean, by the way, I'm using a very romanticized image of migration here. Space history itself is chock full of romanticized concepts and allusions to expansionism, particularly the Western frontier in the United States. That was how they sold the space program back in the day, and that's how a lot of people still think of it. And we need to start to move beyond it and particularly consider who gets to go and what happens when they get there. Let's start with some assumptions. Let's say Elon Musk pulls it off. 
So I'm using his numbers. This is what he presented at the International Astronautical Congress a couple years ago. A million people is what he argues is what you need, just a million, round number, for a self-sustaining settlement on the surface. I'm also assuming that getting there will be reasonably safe. They'll have an established infrastructure, so you won't die immediately when you get there. I'm going to assume, and I disagree with Dr. Ridley here, that there is no significant exporter economy available back to Earth on Mars. There's nothing there. And this is from Elon's own numbers. He says to get there on the SpaceX plan, make it affordable, only a quarter million dollars a person. And I actually had a late-breaking update. This is from two days ago. The number is, sorry, early adopters, you, you missed the chance. It's now half a million dollars to get there. So this is still something, my emphasis here, he's still talking about this. The prices are going to fluctuate, but let's, you know, $250,000 to $500,000 for a ticket. These are the factors that I argue will drive the demographic composition of migrants going to Mars. The first being the cost of the trip, the second being the lack of economic incentives to go. And then, of course, the practical needs of actually having to maintain a settlement on Mars so you don't die. So I'll, let me address these three real quickly. This, I think, is the most important aspect that no one has really started to talk about. And this goes back to that core question of who gets to go to Mars. And if the tickets cost $500,000, for it's functionally a one-way trip, because you have to have a long wait, as Dr. Ridley talked about, to come back. You're really limiting yourself to maybe the top 1% or couple percent of wealth in the entire world. People who can afford the trip do not look like the rest of the world. It's not an even representation of what the world looks like. About 55 million millionaires or more by the year 2023. That's roughly the time Elon Musk is talking about starting this effort. So your entire population of people who can even possibly afford a $500,000 ticket is only about 55 million people out of 8 billion. Again, heavily focused in North America and Europe. And as, also, as we know, of course, there are significant racial disparities in wealth in those countries and regions as well. Second issue, Mars doesn't have anything Earth wants. There's nothing valuable on Mars, unless someone is really into dusty rocks then I have a planet for you. Mars doesn't have tectonics. It doesn't concentrate ores, so there's no main lines of gold or molybdenum or any other rare earth metal, so to speak. It has iron and it has dust and it has nothing. There's nothing valuable on Mars. Nothing makes sense to go there and bring it back for how hard it is to get there and back. So there's no economic incentive. So the people who would be moving to Mars, unlike most mass migrations in human history, will not be moving to improve their financial outlook. They will actually be accepting probably a permanent reduction in their quality of life. And then, of course, the migration flow will be completely and utterly controlled by SpaceX itself. They will have a monopoly of access to any Mars settlement. You can't have unlicensed migration to Mars because no one else literally has the capability to get there. So it'll be tightly controlled by a single private company, and most likely, they will be selecting people based on their practical skills. Highly skilled laborers would be required, highly skilled, highly trained and highly educated people in order to maintain life support systems, medicine, botanists maybe from the Martian. And so you're asking even to more to slim down that population of millionaires to say, move to Mars, labor all the time, to barely stay alive, and don't make any money while you're doing it. Who gets to go and who do they represent? And what do we want them to represent of Earth? 
And if we take a system that is fundamentally based on who can purchase access, you're going to ensure a non-standard representation of the globe based on where the wealth happens to be concentrated. So migrants to Mars will have to be wealthy, highly educated, highly skilled uh, people willing to dramatically lower their standard of living for the rest of their lives. And of course, demographically, most of them will come from North America and Western Europe based on the, the financial uh, distribution of wealth. And then who knows what SpaceX allows or doesn't. So there's the fundamental difference is, unlike migration here on Earth, where there's external factors that drive migration, political disruption, economic motivation, so forth, Mars will be a solely internalized motivation. One has to choose to give up the life that they have and fundamentally change it and take a risk to go somewhere else. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Casey. They're very interesting reflections. And I think you've all done a great job for setting the scene for discussion. We will start with some questions, answers, comments here on stage. First of all, Thank you really much for great introductions. I think you set the scene perfectly for this discussion and this topic. And there's so much to discuss, but since we have the professor with us, we'll start with the professor. Ask the professor. You touched upon it, Aaron, touched upon difficulties and possibilities, but in a professor kind of way, can you try to summarize one or two or three main challenges of getting to Mars? And then, being a professor, you also have the answers. If you, can, if you can provide us with the answers, we'll be happy to take them also. So I think that the biggest challenge to getting to Mars is the size of the rocket. The fact that when you basically launch something into space, you have to carry the fuel that you need to bring yourself home or to continue on to the journey. One of the best things that you can do to basically mitigate the amount of fuel that you need is use stages in rockets. So I think that most of you have seen like a space shuttle launch. And what happens in the space shuttle launch is you have the space shuttle attached to a bunch of things. And then as it goes up, those things fall off after a while. So you basically use up all the fuel in there and then it falls off. And we need to do the exact same thing when we go to someplace like Mars. What we need to do is we need to basically go up into space and we need to come up with some way to like refuel a, sh a shuttle or refuel a big ship and then take that thing to Mars. And then once we get to Mars, we need to refuel it again and come home. And so we need to have the ability to actually put fuels into things in space so we don't have to carry the fuel that we're going to use to get home to Mars. So the biggest thing that we can do to improve our chances to go to Mars, two big things, we need to come up with the ability to refuel in space, and then we need to come up with better fuels. They're working on fuels that are what are called electric propulsion. So you guys have probably all seen Iron Man. Iron Man is what I use in class to demonstrate the idea that Iron Man doesn't carry around gigantic tanks on his back he has basically no visible fuel source. And he uses what, what you might think of as ion propulsion. So he uses a very new technology to actually thrust. And that's what we need to adapt for space. We need to adapt these new propulsion technologies to actually push us uh, to get to Mars. We can't keep using chemical rockets like we have been using to get to Mars. We need to move to things like ion thrusters. 
the ability to refuel in space and the ability to use new fuels, I think, is, are the two most important things to get us there. Very good. And you even have some solutions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> now we just need the money. I'll challenge you, uh, Patrick. We are facing so many issues, challenges, let's face it, problems here on Earth. Yeah. So why should we spend all this money on going somewhere where we have to give up our comfort of life? People think that space is really very expensive. And to you, or to me, it is very expensive. I can't afford to, to put a probe on Mars, unfortunately. Checked my bank account last week, it didn't, uh, <laughs> didn't work out. It's all relative, so being in Norway right now, I'm going to use oil as an example. Putting a probe on Mars costs in the hundreds of millions of US dollars. For example, the UK put a probe on Mars, it was 120 million US dollars. And the Americans with the Opportunity rover that had 15 years of great science on Mars, it cost 400 million dollars to do that mission. A prospecting oil rig with a one in five chance of actually hitting the jackpot and finding oil costs of the order of $150 million. And that's just with a one in five chance. In the UK, we have the UK Continental Shelf, which is our oil industry. And the operating costs of that alone are seven billion pounds. For comparison, the entire operating budget of the European Space Agency, that's all of the contributing countries, is six billion pounds. The UK only pays 350 million pounds a year to the European Space Agency. You might argue, okay, but we need oil to do things. Okay, fine. Let's go to jewellery. The UK, as I said, spends 350 million pounds or 450 million dollars-ish on space. They spend 4.2 billion dollars on jewellery bought in shops. In America, they spend, NASA has a budget of 16 or 17 billion. They spend 30 billion a year on jewellery. In comparison, and you say, yeah, why go to space when we've got so many problems on Earth? Obviously, jewellery is a priority, and we don't need to go to Mars. That's without going into the military budgets. And, and oh, you have more? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The military budget of the UK is 50 billion a year, compared to 350 million on space. In America, it's something like 700 billion dollars. So actually, it's a drop in the ocean. The amount of money we spend on space is negligible. Mm. It's nothing. But still, it's a lot of money. Point taken. <laughs> <laughs> Since it's on, let's face it, on the expensive side at least, you point out, Casey, that it will only be the rich guys going. The ticket will be costly. So what's in for the rest of us? Are there any ripple effects, any benefits for, for Earth here? Is there something else? You are traveling around arguing for human exploration, but there is only a smaller group that will actually get to go. What about the rest of us? I think the important thing to remember is the system I described is what happens when a private company tries to lead the way. We as a society get to choose what we prioritize. So if we consider Mars too expensive for public investment, then you'll have a private company going and then it'll be for rich people. But if a public society decides that Mars is important to spend a small amount of money on, then we get to impose as representatives or citizens of that society our values onto that. So NASA is beholden to the taxpayers, to the members of Congress. They represent people. And so NASA has a responsibility to have a better representation of the country in its astronaut class, in its priorities, in the scientific focus. 
But if we step away from that, then you have other interests pursuing it that does not have that same responsibility. And that is what we get to decide in terms of policy and priority as a nation or as many nations, what role we want to play in that. So I would argue for more public investment in space that ensures that there is return to the public and that the public is represented, therefore, in the exploration itself. Okay, so we spend the money, and doing that, we also get benefits here on Earth, and we go there, as you say. Let's imagine that. But how can we imagine that? And we have, we have people on the ISS, and we've had experiences on, on the moon, but analog sites, you have been working with that, Lucinda, and as of now, do you have any experiences or reflections from your stay in these analog sites? Any unforeseen challenges or maybe that you, we have some strength that we didn't know that we had? I was made executive director in 2009, so I've been that for about 10, 10 years now. And the, one of the first things Dr. Robert Zubrin had me do was become a crew member at our Mars Desert Research Station in Utah. And we have two halves. Uh, the other one's in the Arctic, which is a lot, lot more remote. Um, very difficult. They have to be, the crew has to be autonomous, which is much like what they would have to be on Mars. But we focused, he sent me to Utah, basically, to Summit, which has uh, got incredible geology, very Mars-like. And most of the time, the crew selection are a group of individuals that come from one university. Most of the people already know each other, have maybe done a term or two together, and so they work really well together. My experience as a crew member when I was sent out just because I took on this role, I needed to know more about what we do, obviously. So the first thing is to experience it for yourself. I was put in a crew and I didn't know them. I learned really quickly that group dynamics were really important. You really need to have a tight crew who are willing to really work together and problem solve. I didn't have that. I was describing earlier, it could be more like a Lord of the Flies experience if you're not careful, if you don't plan and prepare, absolutely. These people need to bond and go to Mars. They need to have each other's backs. They, you know, they need to be willing to definitely help out and work together. So important teamwork. Being an education outreach officer at the Royal Astronomical Society, I forward STEM, and I just move those letters around to go from STEAM to teams, because I think really in forwarding science and technology, that teamwork is ultimately one of the most important things. Being part of our university rover challenges, we have those teams that build these $25,000 rovers and up. Use not just engineers and scientists, they use economists, historians, accountants. We need interdisciplinary teams and we need them to work together. These students love coming out to our HAB or wherever we're having a rover challenge and just bond together. They could probably go from creating a rover a competition to becoming the crew. Really, really great crew. And this, I imagine, is really important as the group is small, but then it gets bigger and bigger up to Elon Musk numbers of one million people. Where's the magical cutoff here? I mean, is it the same issue when we grow or is this in the beginning? This is the first step. One thing that Dr. Zubin said, this is the beginning of our history for human space exploration, point two, you know, because of 2.0, because we've already sent humans to the moon. So humans have left Earth for a little bit, and that's great if we would go back there, because I think there's some convincing that needs to be done that we are absolutely capable of this. And I think young people today don't realize that. You're absolutely capable of doing this. Going to Mars was something we were going to do eight years after heading to the moon, and we have the technology then in the 70s, 60s and 70s, which they just had to augment a little bit for Mars, and we've lost a little bit of that, a lot of it, for the reason that Patrick mentioned, stagnation. And now we all have to reinvent the wheel. 
and that's costly and timely. And now we're celebrating 50 years of the first time we've stepped on the moon. How much longer are we going to have to wait? Good point. I promised to open up for questions, and I think it's about time to do that. Hello. Thank you very much, firstly, for your great contributions and presentations. It was really insightful, and we loved it, I guess. Dr. Ridley, yeah, yes. so he spoke of like the fuel, the energy that we need, the cost, and then, as, was it Mr. Casey? Yeah, and he spoke of how a very small number of people could go to Mars. With all the insights that you gave us, I took you too as like more passionate to going to Mars. The drama as well, it was like, we have so many issues in the planet, and I know the jewelry is very expensive as well, but firstly, how do you cope with the environmental pollution that we do? Like having so many spaces just trying to go out there and then creating catastrophic atmospheric event. And then, like, how do you guys feel, for example, if this money, or like at least, I don't know, like a part of this, this money and what we're talking about in this festival, like help migrants, you know, like survive. Because we still have people who are dying from hunger. It's, it's, a, it's a really terrible world we're living in. We have institutions like the UN and UNHCR and UNICEF, but it's such a shame that we still have to admit that there are people dying because they cannot drink water or have a crumb of bread. This is my question. Thank you very much. All right, uh, my name you. is Mohammed. I come from Istanbul, Turkey, and I study civilizations. Thank you. I'm going to start off by saying the founder of the Mars Society International, Dr. Robert Zubrin, he has a common response to this question because it comes up all the time. And his response is, do you think that when the Spanish went to America that there were no more problems in Spain? His argument is that we will never be satisfied with the state of play on our planet. And no matter what we do, someone will always say, couldn't we be doing something else with that money? The other point I'd like to raise is that there is direct back propagation of benefits from space exploration. An example of that would be the Beagle 2 lander that went to Mars. The technology development that they did in the space of just four years had massive spin-off opportunities that helped people in different locations. So, for example, one of the instruments on this device, on this probe, was a mass spectrometer, and they had to take it from the size of a room to the size of a cardboard box. And by doing so, by miniaturizing the technology, they spun it off into the medical world. And a group of scientists in Oxford, actually, they took that technology and applied it to medicine. And they now have a mobile device that will measure bacteria in someone's breath that comes from their gut. And that particular bacteria can lead to ulcers and cancer. By being mobile, by being small, they can take this to third world countries where the people don't have access to hospitals. A science mission to Mars has saved the lives of impoverished people. So you're not spending money just to do some flashy mission. It always comes back. There are two responses that I have to, to add to that, too, which is one, in a sense, it's a false dichotomy. We don't have to choose one or the other. We're capable as a species. We're endlessly creative, and there's 7 billion of us to focus on both problems. And I think, fairly enough, the issues of hunger and poverty and uh, global stability get far more attention and far more funding. Money, if, if NASA disappeared tomorrow, for example, that money wouldn't then go towards poverty programs. It would just not get spent, right? that, in terms of how governments work on these things. So it's, in a sense, things like the space program, they take a small amount of overall spending and they invest it in something that is fundamentally and profoundly optimistic, which is inspiring to say, what is out there? And how do we organize ourselves peacefully to work together 
the International Space Station was the union of two former Cold War rivals, the United States and the Russian Federation after the collapse of the Soviet Union. One of the most important aspects of that was that it helped keep workers in Russia from the aerospace, rocket engineers, and other capabilities from going to work for rogue states, basically, to work in arms race, nuclear development, and so forth. It kept them involved in something peaceful, something profound. And then also, it created a union of cooperation between the United States and Russia, which continues today. Even in increasing political <laughs> ups and downs between the two countries, they have a shared common goal of peaceful cooperation in space. So there are these broad international, and this is actually a critical thing we didn't discuss today, was the, the role of international collaboration, which is one of the kind of the most profound and practical benefits from joint efforts in space. It's so complex, it's so expensive, it's so difficult that only by working together can we achieve something. And the act of working together, to me, is one of the greatest practical benefits of the space program. I would agree that we're never going to be perfect enough. If we wait until we are, then we're never going to go, which is kind of why we're stagnant in some ways. We will open for more questions. So can I see the mic? Here we have the mic. Hello? Yeah, okay. So my name is Christopher. I'm Norwegian. I study here at NTNU. I have, thanks for a, a great introduction, by the way. I have uh, two questions. Okay, so question number one. You mentioned a number, one million people, and you said that number came from Musk. I'm curious what's behind that number. Is it the number you'd need to have a population that could reproduce? Is it founded in like the amount of people you need to keep a stable local economy? Where does that number come from? And then my second question is, in the first introduction, we talked a lot about how it takes an enormous amount of fuel to get off of the surface and then to get to Mars. Is there anything to be gained by turning that into a two-step process? Say, establishing a base somewhere else. The obvious answer would be the moon and then going from the moon to Mars. Or is that just an unrealistic complication? Thank you. All right, so we are stepping up this challenge and being a bit more brief. First, one million people, sweet number, round, but uh, something else? Elon Musk just pulled it out of the air. It sounds like a good number to have a self-sustaining colony, settlement that doesn't depend on Earth for its industrial base. No one exactly knows where it came from, but it seems like a good round number. Yeah, so it makes more sense to actually have a production facility for fuel off of Earth because you would be outside of Earth's gravity well. If you were on the moon, the moon has about five times less delta V to get off of the moon. So it's significantly easier to get off of the moon. And if you orbited around the moon, then it would be even easier than that. And so having a way station where people actually come off of the Earth and go to an orbiting station around the moon or something like that, a colony on the moon, and then going to Mars would be significantly easier. It would be much less fuel needed. Just a very quick, not quite counter argument, but point to make here is that the cost of making that infrastructure on the moon in the first place depends on how long term you want this view to be. But for yeah. the short term colonization of Mars, it's far more expensive to do that. Very good. Thank you. Uh, we're continuing in this space now. There's the mic. Hello, thank you guys for being here. My name is Elias, I'm from Norway, and I study at NTNU. My question is, why Mars? Why not the moon? Why can't we make an establishment there? And can you guys mention if there are any benefits to establishing a moon base first before going to Mars? Thank you. Moon is great, it has no atmosphere, radiation, it's hot and colder because of the sun that hits it over, you get two weeks a night, two weeks a day. It's a lot easier to get to, a lot faster, so far more practical, a good first step, but Mars is the only place that's really realistic to settle for the long term. So it's a good practical step, but it's, it's difficult to maintain a, a very large settlement there for a long time. 
Aaron, you wrote about this, didn't you? Pros and cons, moon, Mars. So it's very easy to get stuff back from the moon yep. to Earth. You could actually build, we were talking earlier about a rail gun. You could actually build a gigantic rail gun and just launch stuff off of the moon and have it go directly onto Earth. So essentially you can ship stuff from the moon to Earth for free. It's very economical to settle on the moon. It just sort of sucks compared to Mars. <laughs> I mean, well, it's one of the projects I worked on was terraformation of, of Mars over a thousand, a thousand years, which is a long time. But ultimately, we think humans can survive on Mars with just a, a suit and, a, and an air tank. And once we thicken the atmosphere, and Dr. Really might know more about this, um, obviously. It's definitely a first step to probably more difficult goals. And it's, thing, it's one that we think will be easily obtainable with um, all the experience we already have from going to the moon. And also, at some point, Mars is going to be in the habitable zone. So Earth isn't going to be here forever. That's one of those extreme ideas that comes across. So at one point, Mars will be warm enough for us. So that's why, mostly, the reason that we chose Mars. Yes, please, go ahead. Hi, yep. My name is Elisa. I'm from Germany, and my background is in social anthropology. I have a question. Uh, well, first of all, I wanted to make a short statement. I don't, didn't really like the example of the Spanish going to the America. We all know what happened afterwards. Yep. And it wasn't a part that we can be proud of in history. My question actually goes to you, to the guy from the... I forgot your name, I'm sorry. Casey is your first name, but I forgot yeah. your last okay. name. Yep. So you were speaking about the question, who gets to go to Mars? And I think this is a, given in this setting that we didn't, we weren't discussing whether or not we should go to Mars. We just like made this assumption. So within this setting, we asked the question, who should go to Mars? And given this un world, which is like very, very unequal, and given Elon Musk, who is basically the heteronormative male white embodiment of some kind of prophetic savior of, the, of humanity, <laughs> I'm wondering how these debates shape, how you speak about these questions. Are social scientists involved? Who's involved in these debates about who will get to go to Mars? What I was trying to raise with my talk was that this is something that is an active area of debate, particularly within the public sphere. And that's my real message, is that when the public sphere steps back from these decisions, the private sphere does not have the same responsibility. And this is why we have public investment in fundamental science and research, that we have a way to direct that as citizens and have it represent our values more. And so definitely at NASA and I'm sure at other government space agencies, that's definitely a thought. Most of those, frankly, aren't thinking about long-term settlement at this point, and they're really focused on just getting there, doing more of an Antarctic base station, kind of cycling out scientists at a small habitat for a few years at a time and coming back. And that would be made up of basically a highly trained astronaut corps which has over the years gotten far more diverse and representative of society. And so that's where those are. Big picture stuff, that is definitely not in the conversation right now because it doesn't have to be, as you pointed out, right? And so it's, it's, it's what happens when people are allowed to do things under their own interests without necessarily having the public interest as part of their mandate. Very good. And there we have one, I believe. Thank Please go ahead. My name's Hart, and I come from Pakistan. So since Mars does not have the magnetic field, how do you propose that the people there would be actually safe from the radiation? And then since it does not have the magnetic field and because the greenhouse gases are escaping into the atmosphere, how are you actually going to maintain the atmosphere there for the humans to survive? The main thing that stops radiation from coming into from 
causing us harm on Earth is actually our atmosphere itself and not necessarily the magnetic field of the Earth. The magnetic field can divert low energy particles, but very, very, very high energy particles that goes right through the magnetic field and comes right into the atmosphere. And we have this nice, thick, robust atmosphere above us, and that stops the vast majority of particles from coming in and irradiating us. On Mars, there's not as much atmosphere, and so the majority of time, it would be okay. The normal solar wind from the sun won't cause radiation damage to us, but there are large events on the sun where people will have to take shelter. So you'll have to, basically, when we see something going off on the sun, you'll have to take shelter from that, or else it will be bad. There's not a thick enough atmosphere. Yes. Well, how do you maintain it? Does oh, it, how does do you it get maintain? stripped away without that? Right. So the Earth's magnetic field basically kept our atmosphere from blowing off the planet while Mars does not have a magnetic field. And so we're going to actually have to release gases into the atmosphere to try to make the atmosphere robust. So if we can make the atmosphere more robust, it will be healthier for us and it will slow the process down. Please, you will get the honor to have the last question. Okay, thank you. I'm Sankalp, and speaking about moving to Mars, I guess our nationalities are irrelevant. I was very happy with Casey's presentation, and thank you for highlighting your cynicism for putting our trust and power in one individual, Elon Musk. I think the hero worship he's receiving is totally unreasonable, and thank you for your presentation. Building on that thought, what do you think is the role of national governments and national agencies in our pursuit to reach Mars? And when you're talking about having a planet B on Mars, why don't we see more collaboration between nations to create a program that represents planet Earth? And we're seeing these massive projects like the SLS, which are really burdens on one economy. I'd like your thoughts on that. Thank you. Yeah. So I think this is the importance of having public investment in space flight. And so this is the interesting question that the first question we got was, why is it worth public investment? And this is another good answer to that, because if someone else is going to do it, we won't have a say in it as the rest of the public. And I think you do see a lot of cooperation between international space agencies. You're seeing that with the moon. You're seeing that particularly in the International Space Station. And there's been discussion of joint missions to Mars from with Russia and the USSR back in the day, with the US and other nations, with you know, many other nations. It's kind of assumed it'll be an international effort. The difference is, in a sense, by being responsible to the taxpayer, there's a certain amount of limitation that space agencies, there's a little bit of a fear about getting too far out there. They don't want to incur taxpayer irritation or wrath because it sounds like, what are we spending this money on? And so they tend to keep it very tightly focused, in a sense. The consequence of having that responsibility to citizens of the public investment is that you have to show relevance. And so long-term settlement has generally been avoided as seeing too far out there. And so it tends to focus on short-term stays for scientific focus. So there's an organization at NASA Ames, some of my colleagues started, called Blue Marble Space. And it's just so that when we go to, to whatever, wherever we go in the solar system, we're not going to plant anyone's national flag. We're going to plant a humanity flag, a flag with the blue marble with our Earth on it. So it encompasses everyone on our planet. And the second thing is, I agree with you about Elon Musk. It's a bit unreasonable. However, that's what we need. We need leaders to step up as someone to lead us. We were banking on NASA. And 50 years later, look where we are at. 
in some ways, the Elon Musk, the Bezos, all of those leaders are helping push us forward, and that might help us give us that boost. Thank you very much for great answers and very good thoughts, reflections. We are talking about Mars exploration. This is heading into the unknown. And I think each and one of us have difficulty grasping what it will be like. But what we may argue is that we're going into a period which is arguably the most exciting period within space exploration since the, the 60s, uh, 70s. And what I would like to emphasize in this closing is it's really hard to foresee what will happen towards Mars. But what I am quite sure of is that we will have some side effects while we go there. And I would like to emphasize two side effects. The first one is Earth benefits, because I believe that the journey to Mars will contribute to our life here on Earth. Personally, I have the privilege to be involved in research and development within life support systems. We're using, trying to use biology for regenerative life support systems in the long term, We're using plants to grow food, clean water, and oxygen. I believe this technology and this know-how has the potential to contribute to food production here on Earth. One of the buzzwords within this topic is resource utilization. We take resource utilization to the extreme when we aim for long-term space travel, but it's also the right word here on Earth. Try to use as much as possible and try to throw away as little as possible. You have mentioned a lot of other Earth benefits and the list is very long. The other important side effect that I would like to emphasize is international collaboration. Mars is difficult, and I know that Lucinda, she has this point that when we face a challenge, humans tend to step up to it and then work together and, and overcome the challenges. And I know that there are so many challenges here on Earth, and this audience, you come from a lot of different countries, and you have first-hand knowledge about all the challenges that we face here. And I do agree that we should face them. I also am a bit worried that we kind of too often tend to start discussing, fighting, just thinking that uh, someone else will fix it. And we really have to step up to the challenges that we have here on Earth. Aiming for something really difficult, something that is almost impossible, history tends to show us that we can step up to the challenge and really start working together. And that's what we really have to do. We have to fix this international collaboration and take it to the next level. The reason, there are many, but international collaboration is one of the main reasons. While there have been discussions and fights here on Earth, people have been collaborating in space. Maybe, just maybe, it's worth it just for that. Thank you for joining us here tonight. I would like to thank Strindens Promenadorkester, the internal theater group here at the Student Society, for contributions. Thank, thanks to you to uh, the technical group, getting everything together. Special thank you for our experts in the panel. It's not only been good, it's been really good. I, I, I really enjoyed it. For those of you visiting, enjoy the rest of your stay here in Trondheim. And to the rest of us, let's make the best out of the rest of ISFIT and enjoy your evening. Thank you.